know, conservatism is really meant to be this thoughtful thing. And one of the things, and this is where Kirk, I think there's a, uh, there's so many elements of genius in him, but this is not someone who said one thing and did another. He truly believed that real change comes from acts of love. It really does come from one person helping another and that that's what makes history over time. You know, you go, you'll always have these great figures who rise and fall, but real history, and this is so Augustinian, but real history is moment to moment. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, pleased to be your host on the podcast. That voice you heard there at the top of the podcast was that of Bradley J. Berzer. He's an associate professor of history, but also Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, a fine institution. Dr. Berzer was here at the Acton Institute as part of our Acton Lecture Series for 2015, speaking on Russell Kirk. And, uh, of course, he's also the author of a brand new biography of Russell Kirk entitled Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Uh, we'll get to our interview with Brad Berzer in just a few moments. Before we do that, though, I want to highlight our next Acton Lecture Series event here at the Mark Murray Auditorium in the Acton Building, downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. It'll be happening on November 19th, right here at the Acton Building. Doors open at 11.30 a.m. The speaker on the 19th is Marina Nemat. The title of her lecture, Finding Faith in an Iranian Prison. Uh, if you don't know Marina, uh, she has a, an amazing story to tell. She was born in 1965 in Tehran, Iran. Uh, grew up in a largely, uh, a, a much more liberal society than we would think of, uh, of Iran being now, of course. Uh, then, then came the Islamic Revolution of 1979. She was arrested at the age of 16 and spent more than two years in Evin Prison in Tehran, which is a notorious political prison. She was uh, tortured. She was very nearly executed, but uh, fortunately she was released from prison. She survived that ordeal and eventually made her way to Canada, where she's now written two volumes of memoirs, the uh, first being Prisoner of Tehran, which was released in 2007, international bestseller that and also after tehran a life reclaimed it's going to be a fantastic lecture uh marina nemat has a great story to tell again november 19th 11:30 a.m price is 15 dollars uh, for uh, most everyone if you're a full-time student that price drops to 10 dollars, and of course it includes uh lunch uh here at the acton institute so please do join us on November 19th, uh, for Marina Nemat as part of the Acton Lecture Series 2015, Finding Faith in an Iranian Prison. Well, I am pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton by Dr. Bradley J. Berzer. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Dr. Berzer, he is the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and a professor of history at Hillsdale College. Uh, also, the second visiting scholar of conservative thought and policy at the University of Colorado. Brad, first of all, welcome to Radio Free Acton. Thanks, Mark. Great I'm very to, glad to be here. You, you know, seeing that, that position at the University of Colorado, I remember when that position was created, it caused a bit of a stir because people were like, what are they putting a little 
cage where they're putting a conservative in there that the students can go by and look at the weird specimen. Uh, they, they threw bananas at me. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Well, is, is that uh, is that uh, an accurate understanding no. of that position? It was it was incredible, actually, Mark. Um, uh, there is no way, even if even if I had to, I could not come up with a single bad incident that happened. It was one of the best years of my life. Oh, that's great uh, to hear. I, I was I was integrated into the faculty perfectly. I was not a specimen. Good, so, good, good. At good, least good. if I was, I didn't know. Look, that's that's well that's the best way to do it that's right well you're here today uh at the acton institute as part of our acton lecture series for the fall of 2015 we've had a very busy series this year uh and uh you delivered an address based on your new book that actually as we record this has been released is today actually today the release is the official release day yeah november 5th uh, Guy Fox Day. That's right. Yep. And uh, you, you are releasing a biography of Russell Kirk, and it's entitled Russell Kirk, American Conservative. And uh, the one unfortunate thing is that I wasn't able to get my hands on a copy prior to this, so I haven't read it yet. But I do have a copy now, and I'm going to read it. And uh, Thanks, basically, Mark. I want to just uh, talk a little bit about Russell Kirk, yeah. um, who's a man who probably people should know more about. I need to know more about in these times. Um, and so what I want to start off with is just a basic question about the, the scene when Russell Kirk stepped onto the stage. Um, he's one of the men who's credited probably kind of the founding father of the American conservative yes. movement. Uh, when he, in his, his, the, the way he attained that title is 1953, he published the book The Conservative Mind. So the question then becomes, how was conservatism viewed in the United States prior to that uh, what was the state of things yeah oh, that's a great question mark and, and i'll just give you a little bit of background russell kirk was born in 1918 and he died in 1994 he is credited you're absolutely right he is credited with the 1953 book the conservative mind as being the founder of conservatism but there had always been well always there had been since the rise of the progressives there had always been opposition in the teens and 20s there had been a number of groups that had really opposed the progressives. You got people like the humanists out of Harvard and Princeton, led by Irving Babbitt and Paul Emmer Moore. There were a number of Southern agrarians who were opposed to progressivism. A number, strangely enough, and this is a story that's barely been told, but a number of science fiction writers. In fact, science fiction as a genre got its start being anti-leftist. Interesting. And so you had, and then you had libertarians, and you had a lot of anarchists. And the anarchists, these were respectable anarchists, not bomb-throwing ones. Sure, but, your J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien types of anarchists. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, philosophical yes. anarchists. Uh, in America, it would have been Albert J. Nock, would have been the most prominent one, Episcopalian priest, minister, and commentator, also a, a college professor. But all of these groups had never really gotten along, and partly just because they had no reason to talk to one another. And the one thing they had in common was they disliked the progressives. What happens then with World War II is we come out of that as one of two superpowers. And the great question that's asked by all these returning vets and America as a whole is, what did we just do? We just, <laughs> we just expended four years of men and resources. And of course, we ended up killing one tyrant, but we've got another now on the loose. And so we've got rid of Hitler, which is great, but now we have Stalin. And one of the most important questions in America in the 1940s was, who are we? And a lot of people started talking about our roots being, well, here's the American founding. How do we judge that? What's Western civilization? How do we fit in? 
So there were a number of pieces that came out in the late 1940s that started playing with the idea of conservatism, but there was also the term individualism and libertarianism. None of them were very satisfying. And when Kirk wrote The Conservative Mind, he was actually still very libertarian at that point. But he chose conservative because he thought, look, we have to preserve something. Part of what we're doing is not just being anti-progressive. We're actually older than they are. So we don't need to be reactionary. We need to cling to our first principles. So conservatism was really a way, a big tent umbrella term to bring all of these disparate schools together to show that, hey, we're not something new on the scene reacting. We were actually here long before you progressives, but now we're reasserting ourselves. And that's, I think, for a lot of people... In America, average people, people you know, working in suburbia, people who had just gotten back from the war, conservatism made a lot of sense. And it was a term then that caught on. Even Eisenhower grabbed onto it. The original title for the conservative mind, the title that Kirk submitted it to the publisher with, was The Conservative Route. And he wasn't talking about conservatives routing their opponents. He was talking about the conservatives <laughs> <Yes>. being routed. <laughs> Um, So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how progressivism had been so ascendant in the early 20th centuries and and, and how the conservatives were routed. Yeah. Again, Mark, just a great question. And I'm impressed. That's that's one of those insider baseball questions that people actually know the original title. Uh, Yeah, that's what Kirk had called it. And in his dissertation, and he was trying to make an argument a kind of a proto-Christian argument, because he himself was not Christian yet. He wouldn't become fully Christian until 1964. So we're still a ways away from that. But he was flirting with it. And the reason he chose that title comes really from kind of an old Catholic Western tradition that argues that the entire history of the world is the world of the long defeat. And that all we can really do in this world is proclaim truth and keep truth alive and we wait for god to claim victory in eternity so it it was actually even though kirk was not religious he very much respected the religious argument and he loved the kind of mythological image of us fighting this prolonged defeat and that's what we're doing so we're not going out for victory because that's god but we are going out to wage the war every generation. Similar to Whitaker Chambers' uh, uh, assertion that he was joining the losing side. Absolutely, without question. The only difference is Chambers, of course, had been raised in Marxism. And a lot of what Chambers, even when Chambers was a conservative, he still held on to a lot of his Marxist ideology, in particular that idea that history is all loss if you're not on the progressive side. Sure. Uh, Kirk was coming from a slightly different perspective, but the argument's the same. Now, I want to I, I ask this question. I, wanna, I want you to, to tell me if I've read this sentence right, because I picked up a copy of The Conservative Mind. I had never read it. I'm reading it right now. Good. Um, but I noticed right on the first page... He says, and this is a quote from the book, we live in an age of disintegrating liberal and radical notions. Now, when he's talking about liberal and radical notions, how, how is he using the term liberal there? Is he using that to, to say that we're seeing the progressive uh, movement uh, set up these structures that are now failing? Yeah, uh, that's a harder one to answer because Kirk is not exactly clear about that ever. He uh, and th- and this was you know something I think was good for him. Kirk really would rather talk about things he liked than things he didn't like, yeah. and he really wasn't that good about talking about things he didn't like. But in the same way that in the conservative mind, he's building 
you know, again, to use a religious term, he's building a kind of hagiography, almost a, a group of saints who carry this eternal truth with them in a variety of different ways. He also kind of created a demonography or uh, demonology about liberalism. And for him, and this, he's not unique in this, Christopher Dawson at the same time makes this argument, C.S. Lewis makes this argument. The argument of many conservatives, to use that term broadly in the 20th century, but especially among British ones, was that liberalism was merely a transition between uh, between Christianity, Christendom, and Marxism. That is, liberalism was not something in and of itself. It inherited the ethics of Christianity without the truth of it. And therefore, from the very beginning, liberalism was always hanging by the thread of its own death. And that meant, and this, this gets into some really esoteric things, what that meant for conservatives was that we conservatives basically owned creativity and imagination. And it was the liberals who were completely desiccated. They were dry when it came to any new ideas. All they were doing, though they didn't even know it, they were basically making Christian arguments without God. And that that would work fine for two or three generations. But suddenly a generation will come along and say, why are we doing this? There's no anchor. And then it's dead. Well, one of the things uh, that, that I thought of as you were talking you you've given your lecture and i i was i was thinking about what i was going to ask while you were talking and i i i noticed that kirk when he when he talks about conservatism he's not talking about it as a program or a political platform or an ideology in fact he's what he's doing is he's setting out a set of principles yes and then what what the job of the conservative is to do is to in all circumstances in every generation to reapply those principles to those situations is that a fair i think that's absolutely correct so what are the principles well the principles are always really come down to one important thing are you treating another person with dignity and I think in our day and age where we throw around dignity so easily, that doesn't mean as much as it might have in the 1950s. But when Kirk said that we treat each other with dignity, we are essentially conserving the best of what our ancestors had given us. And one of the arguments Kirk makes, and he takes this from Edmund Burke, is that every generation has the high duty of passing judgment on the previous generation. Not in an arrogant way, quite the opposite, but that our job is to say, okay, this is what our our mothers and fathers gave us. So we can either pass it on because it's good, we can reform it because it's mostly good but has problems, or we get rid of it because it's no longer applicable to our day and age, or it violates human dignity. A, a prime example of that in the American, the most obvious example would be slavery. Yeah, here it is. Clearly, it's tradition. Tradition says we can do this, but it violates the norms of humanity. It violates dignity. And Kirk was very concerned with that. And in that sense, I think this is a hard thing to sell. Because dignity sounds great, but Kirk means this in the way that Socrates meant it. He meant it, means it in the way Cicero or Jesus meant it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't mean it in the way we might just mean, oh, hey, be nice to that guy because he's also going through problems. Sure. There's a lot loaded with that. And, and of course, as Mark, we talked about in the lecture a little bit, Kirk lived that out by giving money away, by helping people, and never expecting anyone to do the same for him. Amazing generosity that, that you talked about there. Honestly, uh, shocking I, to the point where I... Of course, I understand it because I've grown up reading the lives of the saints, but to actually see it, it's almost unbelievable. And I, how... I, we should add, to, for the people who weren't at the lecture and, and yeah. are wondering what we're talking about, Kirk <laughs> would receive letters 
requesting yes. assistance from scholars and, and people in, 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 as you said in the 1950s yeah and he would often just stuff money into an envelope and send it to them absolutely and then would not ask for anything oh he forgot he took and he it wasn't that he was just forgetful i mean he forgot purposely as uh, no it's a loan right and you yeah. never expect to help you never expect that back um and he but it wasn't just in the 50s before he got married he did that all the time after he got married in 1964 that money went in other directions but it was still always used to help somebody it just generally became and i think part of this is a net's genius his wife uh, she was a really a very good social networker he was a brilliant guy but he wasn't the most social creature I mean, he was a true academic oh yeah um, whereas she is a community organizer in the best sense she's someone who makes things happen so that same money that was there they then used to help the homeless or help refugees from anywhere around the world and they did that yeah and, and still do but they did that until Kirk's death that their house up in Macosta Michigan you never as the daughters would say they never knew who they'd wake up with to have <laughs> breakfast with yeah because it could be anybody that's that's one of the great things about the Acton Institute is that we're not located in Washington, D.C. We're here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Amen. And uh, my family actually camps in Big Rapids up in Macosta oh. County. And <laughs> nice. I, I will say the cover of your book has that fantastic uh, sort of profile portrait of Russell Kirk. Yeah. And I, I've seen it listed as... Um, Russell Kirk, Big Rapids, 1986. Every time I drive through Big Rapids, I'm like, where did he? I wonder where the studio was that yeah. Russell Kirk came to to have that picture. Taken. I actually think that might have been at the newspaper. Oh, really? There. Yeah. That is, I don't know if there's still a newspaper in Big Rapids, but it, when there was, they used to do quite a few stories on him. It's entirely. And possible. I would guess that's where that's from. And and the, you mentioned Piety Hill, the house that yes, his his grandfather Macosta. built, and he lived in. Yes. And uh, it's. It's still there. Yeah, most of it. It uh, it was what that what happened was the main house burned down in 1975, actually on Ash Wednesday of all days, <laughs> and uh, it burned down. And then they built what was left of it. They built around a new home, and it doesn't look much like the old home, but it's really a hodgepodge of the old and new, and it, it works very, very well. But uh, have you been up there, Mark? I have not. It's um it's a very interesting thing because what they've done is they've taken pieces from the old. Big Rapids City Hall. Uh, they've taken pieces of architecture from St. Michael's Church, which was torn down. And they've taken all these, including a mirror from a Chinese restaurant. They've taken all of these things that shouldn't fit together, but do. And they're all part of the architecture of the house. And it, it is one of the strangest and most beautiful places I've ever seen. It, it, it it's a fantasy an, land. It's an bizarre. interesting metaphor for the house of a man whose prime yes. role in life was to bring together these disparate movements. It fits. <laughs> now, I, I have to, since I've got you here, I have to ask. Sure. There's a, there's a section of photos in the book, of course. And one of the photos shows one of the lions at the entrance to the property. And the lion is wearing a toupee? <laughs> yes, that was, Kirk was very funny. But a lot of people don't know this. He loved playing practical jokes uh, to the point where he would actually he would have prominent guests, people who'd won major literary awards. And in the middle of the night, he would sneak into the room under their bed and scare them. <laughs> I mean, that, that, he was truly and they're one of my favorite moments in his life. They got to meet the Pope, uh, John Paul II, and he and his wife took a tour down in the catacombs. And Kirk, just to kind of mess with his wife, ran off and hid 
in the catacombs of Rome in these <laughs> sacred tombs, and oh he started my. making all these ghosts. Yeah, so anyway, my point is, Kirk was very funny, and a lot of what he did, their whimsy, this, this whole rebuilding is whimsical. So they actually found, if I remember right, and I'd have to double-check this, Mark, but one of those lions, the toupee, is actually a toupee modeled after one of the Three Stooges. So oh, it, yeah, that's right. It was in it, the caption. I remember and it, that. And it's actually, it's Aslan. So this is Narnia. But with the Three Stooges headpiece on top. So this is how weird. <laughs> and eccentric. Yeah, uh, weird in a good way, right? But yes, very eccentric. Well, the, the, you huh. talk about how Russell Kirk had a great sense of humor. And this, this reminds me of the one great Kirk story that I know from Acton's history. Because Russell Kirk was involved with Acton. He was on our original yeah. oh, board absolutely. of advisors here. Very important. And he was the... Uh, he was. I don't know if he was the MC at our first event, but at our first annual dinner, William F. Buckley Jr. was there as the keynote speaker, and it, to introduce Buckley uh, was Russell Kirk. So two really uh, eminent figures in modern American conservatism, and Kirk's intro for William F. Buckley was essentially um, a request that he move the headquarters of National Review magazine from the uh, from the horrible. Uh, East Coast. From Sodom and Gomorrah. Exactly. From, from Manhattan <laughs> into the Waters Building next to, uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, next to the Acton Institute, and, and thus sort of redeem it from its, <laughs> its horrible location. I, I don't think Buckley, uh, he, he may have just laughed. I yeah, don't know I, if he had anything to say about that, but <laughs> it, was, it was a fantastic moment. That is fantastic. I love that story. Well, I gotta, uh, I, I gotta, we have to wrap this up, but I want to ask one more question. Sure. And that is, Kirk comes on the scene in the 1940s, 1950s, at a time when American conservatism was in disarray. It was uh, at, at a weak point, and he gave it form and structure. And he died in 1994, I believe. Just April, as, yep. Right around the time that the Republicans were taking over Congress. And That's there was right, sort of a right resurgence yeah. of, of conservatism I I in America again. Uh, I have to say, I think right now we're at a point where, once again, American conservatism is kind of Perhaps a little rootless, uh, especially in, a, in, the, in the visible public leadership of the movement. There are so many different voices, but there's no Russell Kirk type person who can intelligently bring it all together, it seems. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and I, I sort of, as I was reading The Conservative Mind, thinking this is a 35-year-old man writing this book. That's right. Uh, would it even be possible for something like this to happen today? I, I, and I, I don't know. I, I would tend to think, no, I don't know how you would influence the public as broadly as Kirk was able right. to do in the 1950s uh, with a similar approach today. It'd have to be totally different. What would Kirk say about the state of conservatism today? He, Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, I can't say for sure, obviously, because he's been dead now for so long. But I don't think he'd be happy. I, I think in particular the idea that we would sell conservatism as a part of a bookstore or that we would sell it on the radio or even on TV, I think that would not go over well with him. You know, conservatism is really meant to be this thoughtful thing. And one of the things, and this is where Kirk, I think there's, a, uh, there's so many elements of genius in him, but this is not someone who said one thing and did another. This is, you know, going back to our talk about his charity, he truly believed that real change comes from acts of love. It really does come from one person helping another and that that's what makes history over time. You know, you'll, you'll always have these great figures who rise and fall, but real history, and this is so Augustinian, but real history is moment to moment. And I think he'd be very upset about where conservatism is. I think he would reject a lot of the ways that it's gone, but he also would not leave, he would not, ha he would not be without hope. 
And in particular, he loved to say, quoting from Edmund Burke, that wherever there is at least a heart beating, there is always hope. And that uh, who would have thought in 1953 that this dissertation written by this obscure guy from Michigan would have done, you know, become an international bestseller. Uh, And we don't know where that'll come from. And of course, what's interesting too, Mark, just to answer that somewhat quickly, you know, you think about Kirk, he never could have been a true public figure because he didn't have the personality. But once Goldwater came along and you have this incredible charisma, then, and, and, they were very close friends, by the way. We hadn't gotten into that. They were extremely close friends. But then then you have this guy who's uh, an, Air, an Air Force pilot. You have this guy who's an entrepreneur. He speaks well. He's handsome. And he's basically giving the Kirkian message. Reagan did the same thing. And I think what matters is not that one person will arise to do this, but that we'll have some intellectuals out there, some thoughtful people who are doing the right thing, lots and lots of very good people doing lots of little things in neighborhoods and elsewhere, places then like Acton, which can distribute those ideas between you know all of these various groups, and maybe a charismatic political leader who can pull that all together. That, I think, if there's a hope, that's where it's going to come from. Yeah, it's wonderful to end on a note of hopefulness. Oh, I hope uh, so, Mark. You I, know, it's, it, there, there are so many ways that you can look at the world today and say things are just dark. But the reality is that, that the quote from Burke, where there's a heart beating, there's right. hope. That's, that's a wonderful, yeah. wonderful way to look at the world. And, and Mark, I do want to, I know we're ending, but I do want to say thanks to Acton. I, this... Acton is exactly the kind of organization that allows a free society to work properly. Absolutely. So what you're doing here is essential. Well, we appreciate that. And I, I, I was going to say uh, at the beginning, I wanted to compliment uh, Hillsdale College as well. Oh. We, uh, <laughs> it one is of the pretty things, precious, pretty one special. One of the things we have around here is like a whole flock of Hillsdale grads. And every, <laughs> the one thing that I notice about Hillsdale grads, every one of them that, that I meet, they're kind, decent, good citizens. And they're they're smart, yes, <laughs> but they 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 know they understand the fundamentals of America, and that's a wonderful thing. It's it's they unfortunately actually, rare in American collegiate education. Today. I, they actually believe in small R Republican duty, and it's amazing. It's I a love wonderful them. thing. Absolutely love them. Well, Brad, I want to thank you for taking oh, thank some time you, to Mark. join us. It was the fun book, talking. yeah, the book uh, by Bradley J. Berzer is uh, Russell Kirk, American Conservative, just released uh, as we record this on November fifth today. Congratulations, and I wish you well with Thanks, the book. Thanks, Mark. And, uh, Thanks you can, for having me. Oh, absolutely. You can pick it up on Amazon and uh, hopefully at your local bookseller as well. And uh, Brad, best to you. Thank, Thank you, you for talking. You too, Mark. And with that, another edition of Radio Free Acton draws to a close. It's always sad to end a podcast, but of course, with the end of a podcast comes the hope of future podcasts, uh, and we will be bringing more Radio Free Acton your way right here on acton.org. I want to thank uh, Brad Berzer for being with me today. He uh, has been a great guest here at the Acton Institute, gave a great lecture on uh, Russell Kirk as part of the Acton Lecture Series. Please look for the video of that. We'll be posting it just as soon as we can on uh, the Acton Institute Power Blog at blog.acton.org. And, of course, uh, you should pick up a copy of the book as well if you're at all interested in Russell Kirk and uh, the rejuvenation of modern American conservatism. It's never bad to go back to first principles, and it's never bad to go back to the folks who really founded the movement and uh, draw from their wisdom. The book is called Russell Kirk, American Conservative. 
published by the University Press of Kentucky. You can pick up a copy on Amazon.com. Hopefully you can do that at your local bookseller as well. And again, thanks to Brad Berzer for joining us here on Radio Free Acton. Uh, It was a pleasure having him. Thanks to you as well for joining us uh, as listeners. uh, Our podcast would not be worth much if we didn't have folks who listen to it. So we do appreciate you. We hope you'll spread the links around to folks who may be interested in Acton and uh, in the ideas that we promote. Uh, Also, spread around the link to the Acton Power blog, please, at blog.acton.org. Lots of great stuff there on a daily basis, and we hope that you check that out as well. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been my pleasure to be with you today on Radio Free Acton, and we will see you next time. This is Radio Free Acton signing off. Have a good day, everybody.